I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This program comprises two very different interviews. The first with James Montier, formerly of Societe Generale, and his colleague Albert Edwards. The second interview is with Barcap's asset allocation guru Tim Bond. The slightly maverick collection of economists and strategists agree on a few things but disagree on much more. Yet two common ideas emerge from their separate discussions. The first is that overpaying for shares, or any asset class for that matter, is a mugs game and is likely to be doomed to failure. The second, on which there's much more debate, is that as markets stay volatile, investors need to think global and look at where the growth is going to come from in the future. James Montier and Albert Edwards are deeply sceptical about this kind of big theme growth investing. Investors should stay focused on value at all times, is their view, whereas Tim Bond thinks the world's economic centre is moving east and is likely to result in huge opportunities. But we start with that focused on value investing, buying cheap stuff and not overpaying for stuff that seems too glamorous and too sexy. It's an appealing idea on paper, value investing, but in recent years it's been something of a disaster. So, does value investing still work? I asked James Montier whether value as an investment idea is dead. I think it, it, it still exists. Uh, to my mind, it, it's the only sensible way of approaching investment, uh, regardless of, of the environment. I think you have to be careful how you define value. Um, and one of the, the hallmarks of what we've seen in the last few years has been rather simplistic approaches to, to value, um, PEs, price to books, um, a lot of the quant guys moving in uh, and just using very simple metrics. I think the market we've been through in the last 18 months suggests that actually we need to reconsider the role of something that Ben Graham put front and centre of his approach, which is balance sheets, uh, and trying to think about value without the context of the balance sheet side of the equation, to my mind, is, is pretty meaningless. So integrating or reintegrating analysis of balance sheets and capital structures into the investment process seems to me to be the way in which value is still meaningful. The other way in which value is is perhaps still meaningful in these markets is it's a multi-asset trait. It isn't necessarily all about equities. Um, And there is a tendency, given the nature of industry, to just obsess about what's happening in equities. But if you broaden value out, there's no reason why you can't find value outside of, of equity space. So a classic example might be bonds. Exactly. How you think about the valuation of bonds, uh, corporate bonds, you can think about um, forms of cheap insurance, which again have a, a valuation consideration in them because you only want to pay as little as possible for that insurance. 
Um, so I, I think value is far from dead um, in the way that uh, it, it's tempting to try and go down that line, but I, I think it's a dead end. Um, one of the, the, the hallmarks of classic value, and, and certainly its derivation, which is equity income, has been based around dividends. Yeah. Um, now, that hasn't been very productive, has it? Because the problem is, is that it's all based upon a figure, which is the dividend yield, the dividend payout, and that has been not declining, but in many cases vanishing, yeah. you know, literally abolished overnight. Yeah. Um, now, that is a core component of actually most value investors' process. They might add other bits onto it, but that will be dividends will be a big bit. Um, but dividends are seems seems to be horribly unpredictable at the moment, and seem to be vanishing very quickly. I mean, one doesn't know whether not to trust the FTSE 100 yield at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the problem with the, the dividends that, that we've had is again they ignore the balance sheet. So people have been happy to take the income stream, forgetting that it's being generated by overleveraged institutions. Uh, as soon as they're forced to deleverage, the first thing that goes is the highest risk part of the capital structure, which is the shareholder, therefore the dividend gets cut. Um, whereas you can find stocks with strong balance sheets that still pay good dividends. Um, so again, it, it brings you back to the way in which we've moved away from understanding balance sheets uh, and we've become focused on profit loss accounts. Whereas if you read uh, security analysis, I think there are only something like three chapters on income statements and about seven on balance sheets. So I think you can account for some of the dividend problems by thinking about the way in which we failed to understand the role of leverage and the use of the balance sheet uh, in that equation. Do you think that we are entering a kind of perfect Ben Graham-like market? I mean, Ben Graham was writing about the 1930s where there were loads of companies that were still paying dividend yields after those that stopped paying dividend yields. Are we entering that kind of market? I think we're returning to it. Um, if, if you look at the sort of stocks that Graham would like, the, the net nets, things that are trading below two-thirds of their, their net current asset value, so that's current liabilities, current assets minus total liabilities, you can find a large number of such stocks. You know, Japanese small cap space is littered with them, um, which, going back you know, any time over the last 20 years, has been nearly impossible to find. So I think we are returning to a world in which Ben Graham would be a lot more familiar with what's going on. He certainly wouldn't have ever approved all the financial engineering uh, and the use of leverage. So I think the, the deleveraging process is, is throwing up the kinds of stocks that Graham would, would recognise as true bargain basement issues. Um, do we think that this might be a very, very good time then to be an institutional value fund manager? I think it could be. Um, as long as, and this is the huge caveat, you have to have a sufficiently long time horizon because there's no guarantee that this won't get worse in, in the short term. Uh, and one of the great con institutional constraints that we suffer is, of course, that everybody obsesses about short-term performance. Uh, if you could buy a set of stocks today and, and bury them for five years, uh, you, you'd be laughing. Um, but... The trouble is there's very few institutions who can behave in that fashion. If value investing does still work for those willing to be patient enough, there's yet another problem. On paper, investing in shares may be rewarding over the long term, and investing in value shares even more rewarding. But what do you say to those investors over the last 10 years who've seen their shares fall in value? What happens if you've picked the wrong couple of decades? The problem is they bought at the wrong point. They bought when the market was expensive. So if you'd bought in 2000, yeah, you'd be screwed. Um, buying now is a totally different valuation backdrop. Uh, and the primary determinant of your long-term returns is the valuation environment that you purchase in. Uh, so buying when markets are expensive is a bad idea. Uh, buying markets when they're cheap 
uh, provided you're a patient, is actually a, long, uh, a long-term good idea. Ah, but here is now the core dilemma, isn't it? Because thus investors are forced to market time. I think there's a difference between what I would call market timing, which is trying to guess the short-term outlook, and having a sensible valuation-driven approach to asset allocation, uh, which I think is perfectly sensible um, and is generally an underexploited area of the market because people are so petrified at the concept of market timing. Yeah. Um, you don't actually have to really time markets. I'm not trying to guess the future. All I'm doing is saying I won't buy when they're expensive. I will buy when they're cheap. Which is no different to what a stock picker does on an individual level. I don't see why it shouldn't transfer into an aggregate level concept. James's colleague, Albert Edwards, also buys into the idea of timing decisions using value-based measures. Well, I think our, our analysis of this was very similar to something I read from Jeremy Grantham, which was saying his longer-term valuation measures have been showing the US equity market has been very expensive since about 1995. Mm. Now, that's a horrendously long long period. Now, our valuation measures show exactly the same thing. The fact that equities are down over a 10-year period, it's not just not buying in 2000. Uh, we would have been very reluctant to buy in, in, in 98 uh, as well, at the point that equities actually took off uh, after the LTCM uh, crisis into the, into the NASDAQ bubble. But equities, certainly US equities, have been very overvalued for a very long time. That overvaluation of U.S. equities over the last few decades prompts another big question. American financial commentators have constantly emphasised the importance of sticking with the markets through thick and thin. It's called buy and hold investing, saving money and investing into equities month in, month out. Again, it sounds a great idea, but it doesn't seem to have been very successful in the last few years, or maybe even decades. Maybe buy and hold doesn't work. I think that's right. I think there's a there's a whole set of, of precepts um, and, and rules that that are used that we have to rethink. Um, the entire of, of the capital asset pricing model goes out of the window. Diversification needs to be rethought. Buy and hold, uh, which is a byproduct of the, of the efficient markets, because it's all about cap weighted indices. Uh, all of these things go out of the window. Uh, the, the simple truth is they were never true. Um, they, they're artefacts of, of very dubious theories. Unfortunately, we have a very bad habit of taking theory as a substitute for fact uh, and just following simple advice. Um, actually, I think you, you need to go back and, and sort of reconstruct finance from first principles, and that can lead you to some very different conclusions. So, yeah, buy and hold doesn't work. And if buy and hold may not work, what about the alternative, chasing sexy stocks that have momentum behind them? The idea of momentum investing has been gaining ground in recent years as more and more academics have noticed that consistently picking the most popular shares can deliver big returns. Maybe momentum investing should be the norm. James's colleague, Albert Edwards, also buys into the idea of timing decisions using value-based measures. The evidence is very clear momentum strategies work. Um, I find them intellectually rather satisfying, which is terribly snobbish thing to say, um, simply because I hate buying simply because anybody else is buying. It's never struck me as a terribly good rationale. It's the same psychology that leads you into believing a whole lot of other stuff that, that is rubbish because uh, you just copy other people's behaviour. I think a value-orientated approach is much more robust uh, and prevents you getting trapped. It's, you know, the, the great fear and momentum is, is you're the last man in. You are the greater fool. Um, 
you know, Buffett always talks about if you've been sitting playing poker and you can't work out who the patsy is, it's you. That kind of that's the great danger of momentum investing, as far as I can see. So I prefer a a value approach combined with a long duration. So I, I'm much happier to buy cheap and forget about it for long periods of time. Now that's as I mentioned it, it may not be as useful to institutional fund managers um, as the momentum approach. But from uh, a non-institutional, unconstrained approach, it makes I think a lot more sense. Just yeah. add to that. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm more. Uh, James is very intellectually unsatisfying the momentum approach, and I've got a much smaller brain than James, so <laughs> it's, it certainly fulfills well, my criteria <laughs> far, far, far more. But uh, I think the problem with the momentum investing, which which I've observed is the tendency for people to believe the story. You end up believing the story. And you have to be uh, very cynical uh, to play a a bubble and not be sucked into it. Whether whether it was the Nasdaq bubble or whether it was the commodity and emerging market bubble we just saw, people end up believing it and not getting out. And almost one, if one plays momentum, almost like an FX trader yeah. would play directional yeah, investing with, with a just that. set of yep. technical rules yep. to stop oneself out. And whether it's the fifty-day yep. moving average, ninety-day, or whether it's yep. a trend line, but people don't don't do that. They end up believing the story, and certainly going around in nineteen ninety-nine or going around in two thousand three and telling people. You know, this was this was a pack of cards. This would all come crashing down around their ears. They just did not believe it mm. uh, because they were sucked into, and that's where the valuations yep, yep, go yep. absolutely potty. And there's the worst, and emerging markets in particular. You know, with the longer the momentum is goes on, the more these assets end up on growth ratings on peak multiples, yep. which is the investment catastrophe, peak which which peak, yeah peak earnings, which is the investment disaster. But well, it seems that though neither of you are entirely comfortable with it, you're both suggesting, though, that if you're able to be clinical in your momentum strategy and able to resist the, the narrative sell, yeah, and as you say, stick to the rules, it can work. I, 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 think, it, I think it can work. Momentum investing mm. is, is shown uh, mm. to work. But these, these are not necessarily alternative strategies. They could be com- complementary. Absolutely. Uh, you don't just one or the other. You might but I, I, think, I think the problem is it takes a particularly dogged, irritating type of person yeah. to be able to, when everyone else around them is saying, yes, yes, this is, is a miracle, to stand out and say, no, actually, it's, it, not. It, 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 it's, it's not. I mean, the policymakers were all... Well, actually, talking about small brains, the policymakers <laughs> were all food, but actually, a lot of investors yeah. believed in the great moderation, mm. which Bernanke took. A lot of people actually believe the nonsense from uh, the Bernanke and Greenspan that 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 the housing bubble was down somehow down to Asian surplus savings. I mean, God, who knows? Greenspan still tells us he does believe this total rubbish. Uh, so even quite clever people can be sucked into believing total and utter nonsense. And clever people do seem to be buying into the latest incarnation of momentum investing, big themes investing. Picking a big idea like emerging markets and then betting the bank on the trend. Will more bubbles emerge in this newly chastened, deleveraging world? Albert Edwards certainly thinks so. I think, you know, we, although we are in a period of, of the great unwind where these huge debt excesses are paid off over a number of 
years, even while, even while we're generating economic growth, these, these excesses will be paid, paid down so extreme that they are. Human nature in some ways doesn't really change. If there is a momentum trade that emerges at some point over the next few years, uh, people will play it and people will borrow to invest in it. And that may be still within the context of the great unwind. But that, that will still be... People will... They might do it at a much more reduced extent. But uh, if there is a cyclical upturn, say, in a year's time, and the oil price starts to... Commodities start to recover again, I'm, I'm sure people will be back in there mm. playing commodities. And they'll do it with leverage. They might not do it with as much leverage... But human nature doesn't change. What was the quote that you have? There's two that are worth noting. One is from J.K. Galbraith, who Mm. said financial markets are characterised by the extreme brevity of memory. (laughs) Um, And the other was from Jeremy Grantham, who, when asked what we would learn from the current crisis, said in the short term a lot, in the medium term a little, in the long term absolutely nothing at all. Um, You know, the the more the, the... People think it changed, the more it stays the same. You know, you, you look at the patterns of bubbles over history, they are always exactly the same. Um, the, the details change, but the, the general process of the bubble inflating and then bursting remains very, very constant. It's fair to say that Albert Edwards of Sokgen is something of a bear. Tim Bond at Barcap, by contrast, is currently something of a bull. He's their chief analyst looking at big market trends. But his optimism for the future shouldn't fool you into thinking you should buy sexy assets at whatever the cost, even if they're a play on something like China, on which actually he's a big bull. Like Montier and Edwards, he doesn't think you could ignore the price at which you buy any asset, including shares. Simply buying the market and sitting tight, that buy-and-hold investing idea, doesn't work in Bond's view. The trouble was that was that was, that, that policy you know, was always proposed and uh, rather uncomfortably, you know, a lot of a lot of the supporting evidence for those proposals was derived from our own study about you know long term returns and that, <laughs> and it always made me uh, you know a little bit a little bit uncomfortable, yeah, so or you're, very you're, uncomfortable you're, you're, in you're, fact. Your long equity curve study was always the key. Yeah, because you can't say look buy and hold. I mean, it's just saying look, just buy an asset and hold it, and you'll be fine. That's that's absurd because your return is governed by the yield at which you buy that asset. So if you buy a government bond at a yield of one percent you can hold it for as long as you want, but you're never going to get more than 1% out of it. So the same thing applies to equities. If you buy equities when PE ratios, you know, at 30, you can hold it for as long as you want, but history says you're going to get a negative return, you know, on any reasonable period. So the point that I would make is that the valuation at which you buy an asset don't determine your short-run return, and they probably don't have a lot of significance for returns, you know, anything under a sort of five-year period. But when you're looking at kind of, 5, 10, 15, 20-year periods, ultimately it's not what the economy does, it's the valuation yeah. at which you buy the asset and that's that determines the... If you buy something that is cheaply rated now, yeah. there's a good chance that you might make money on it. Yeah. Not a guarantee, but it's a good chance. If you buy something that's expensively rated now, there's a good chance there's, you lose money. Exactly. And, and that's exactly. all that we can say. Exactly. And the, and the, and the valuation measures that, that, that really work, and, you know, Schiller's long-term PE ratio, the real PE ratio, uh, and it's Tobin's Q, market value of equities to, yeah, to the replacement the cost. Um, yeah, I think the, I think the, the, the price dividend ratios that's sort of the third in that triumvirate. It's not it doesn't come up quite as well on testing, but it does very well. 
Where Tim Bond parts company from Monty and Edwards is that he's willing to stick his neck out and forecast the likely big trends in the next few years. Monty and Edwards think forecasting is a mugs game by contrast and that you should stick with the stuff that's cheap. Bond thinks that that view ignores some huge trends likely to influence markets over the next few years. You, you know, the, 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 the big story is how, how does the world accommodate, you know, China's appetite and rising appetite for, for raw materials and for energy? And also, how do you accomplish this shift off hydrocarbons as well and, and onto clean energy? And those are, I think those are the two big elephants. But it sounds like you are still, your underlying kind of narrative you have there is quite a global inflationary picture in medium term. Well, um, it, 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 you could define it as inflation. I'd, I'd define it as a necessary rise in prices in a sector that is crying out and desperately needs, you know, a huge volume of capital spending. I mean, I think you've got, not, you've got several things going on, not least, of, I mean, if you just take the energy sector as a whole, I mean, the IEA have got this extraordinary sums of money which they think need to be spent to both kind of um, <coughs> modernise a very obsolescent energy network in the West and, and, and meet the rising demand for energy in in the emerging markets um, and China and, and, and the volumes of money that they're looking at sort of you know 30 trillion dollars in real terms over 15 years I mean these, these are this is I mean that on its own before you then potentially double that sum of money to deal with the hydrocarbon to, to clean energy issue you're, you're talking about switching you know a third to a half of global capital spending into into one sector and then on top of that you've got um, endemic shortages or scarcity in a lot of the the other kinds of strategic uh, commodities, not least of which is, you know, is agricultural. To understand the huge challenges facing the global resource economy, Tim Bond uses one compelling example, Chinese demand for copper. If you say, right, look, Chinese per capita copper consumption is going to end up at the same level that we see in comparable Asian industrialised economies like Taiwan or Korea uh, or Japan, um, now, at the current rates of per capita consumption growth, China will actually get there in about somewhere between 10 and 15 years, probably about 12, 12 years, very roughly, at current rates of per capita growth. Um, when she's reached that level, just to accommodate her aggregate increase in copper demand, you'd have to double the whole world's copper supply. Now, that is just completely unfeasible. You can't, there's no way you can do that. If you look at the yield on new ore discoveries, it's collapsing because all the easy stuff's been found and all the rest of it. So we've got to the point where if, for China's, if China reaches a sort of normal industrialised economy level appetite for, for copper, there isn't enough copper to go around. I mean, it's as simple as that. So kind of likely it's just there isn't any. So you, A, prices have to go through the roof to force innovation and R&D and substitution. And the near substitutes for a lot of the metals are either, you know, related to oil <laughs> somewhere or other because there's plastics, or there are other metals which are mostly in short supply. So you have to, you know, in, in, what, it, what I'm sort of pointing to is you, in, in that whole commodity area, in a lot of places you're going to have to have a dramatic technological yep. shift. And it's the same in energy. Yep. You're going to have to have a dramatic technological shift, and which not just because of the global warming issue, but also just to create the energy that, that the emerging world needs. So the very high prices are a part and parcel of that. Though Timbon may be a China bull, there's still one big problem. How can China grow while the rest of the world is paying off debts and deleveraging? How can anywhere have growth with deleveraging? Historically, you can have deleveraging and um, positive growth, and credit creation usually plays very little role in the first year or so of a, of a recovery. 
um, it's usually internally financed. Um, I think, I mean, the, the, there's, <laughs> there's some truth, I think, in, in, in that deleveraging view in that, you know, going forward, it's difficult to believe that household consumption in, say, the Anglo economies, particularly the US economies, could play anything like the role it normally plays in growth. And I think the next, uh, the, the, you know, the expansion is going to be much more about investment spending uh, and it's also going to be obviously about China. And I, I think the, the one point that um, uh, many people miss is they say, well, you know, after financial crises, individual financial crises, you have this deleveraging and you have, but you, you have positive growth and that's explained by this big pickup in net exports, which is, when you go through the data, it's partly true. Certainly big pickup in net exports does play a role after financial crisis in, in keeping growth positive. But you also see investment turnaround as well uh, and corporate investment. And typically that is all financed by... Uh, by a revival in profitability. Um, but there is a great temptation now to sort of say, well, look, because the whole world's in this crisis, then who do we expand net exports with? I mean, who's going to be the source of, you know, final demand growth? As that's the question. Um, and the answer to that is actually China, which is, you know, going to be responsible for easily more than half global growth, GDP growth on our own. Um, and there you have a sort of mirror image to the financial system in in the West, because... Or, and in fact, the whole economic structure in the West, because savings rates are incredibly high, leverage levels are very low. The banking system was rebooted to a tune of something like thirty percent of GDP. Which kind of puts our own credit crisis into um, into perspective. But that was rebooted back in the nineties, and credit is now expanding very, very fast indeed in China. So M two growth in the six months, really, I suppose, since Lehman's went on, is up uh, about a trillion dollars, which is getting a little about 40% of what the US was doing annually in terms of increases in private sector borrowing. And, and the Chinese banks do have the resources just to keep going. And, they've got, and if they store up lots of bad debts, they can be rebooted again because you've got a massive national accumulation of savings. So the, the way we're looking at it is that China's playing a very important part in the, in the expansion. Uh, and by the end of the year, her growth rate will be equivalent to about a 1% on global GDP alone. It's worth noting, by the way, as an aside, that Bond's bullish views on China, not unsurprisingly, don't find much of an echo with Albert Edwards at Sokgen. Edwards, for one, doesn't think that emerging markets will be able to pull the world economy out of its debt-related problems. I mean, there has been, I mean, there has been quite a lot of hope recently uh, with uh, emerging markets, and you can see it reflected in the movement of, of copper, the Baltic yeah. freight China index. Absolutely, and it is all very much based on hopes that, that China can turn things uh, around. I mean, where we come at emerging markets as, as, an, asset, as, as an asset class is one on the valuation basis, and we don't think they're particularly uh, they're not. cheap. No. But it's also emerging markets participated phenomenally in the liquidity bubbles in, in, in the West. And they participated via foreign exchange intervention. Uh, the US consumer, you know, the main driver, of course, the US consumer, producing a huge current account deficit, that deficit being mirror imaged in huge surpluses elsewhere, stop uh, current, your, if, if you want to stop your currency going up when you have a very large current account uh, surplus, is you have to intervene very heavily. You look at any one of these countries where, where, where you saw big current account surpluses, whereas China, Russia, or Brazil, or any other, money supply growth went out of control because mm. it's very difficult to sterilize that quantity. You know, having to print money mm. to keep your currency from going up mm. is a massive 
liquidity boost. So these economies not only had the export boom directly, but they also participated in very loose monetary policy. So it wasn't so it wasn't just uh, the Western. It wasn't just the UK and the US authorities running excessively loose monetary policies. It was these countries as as well. And that which produced a massive asset boom. And produce huge overcapacity in China, which is now being destroyed at a phenomenal rate. Abs- absolutely. Now, the flip side of that, and of course, the longer it goes on, the more people think it's a structural story. Hence, the, yeah. the real the belief in the emerging markets and commodities well into yeah. the collapse everywhere else. Uh, and it went on for so long because the US trade deficit had gapped out for so long on the back of the, 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 the US consumer. So people believed it was a structural trend. Fortunately, that is now all in reverse. You know, what you're seeing around the world is all of a sudden very sharp collapses in external imbalances, yep. be it China, be it, be it Japan. Japan, yep. huge trade surplus country over many decades, has recorded six trade deficits in a row. Yep. Uh, the US as well. So these huge imbalances uh, are correcting themselves. In one way, that's a good thing. For, for the medium term, because these were a huge problem for the global economy. But in the short term, they do make the outlook for growth in emerging markets, including China, uh, much, much uh, worse. It's a real headwind they have to fight, this, this, this contraction in foreign exchange uh, reserves. And quite frankly, I, I think China is six months behind Russia mm. in terms of what will happen to its reserves. Uh, and I think the very optimistic hopes which are out there, then somehow China, because it's a command economy, can totally buck global market forces when the rest of the world, the developed world and emerging world, is practically in depression, that China can somehow keep growing at all. And you know, not, not just 8% GDP growth, but at all. I think it's a total nonsense. Regardless of whether you think we're going to be saved by China or not, Bond thinks investors are going to have a tough time managing their portfolios over the next few decades. But he's got a number of practical ideas about building a better portfolio, the most important of which is that markets are going to be really, really volatile. You have to take a secular view about China and about commodities and about energy and global warming, and those are your big long-run themes. And then you have to realise that because those themes are very powerful and potentially have some inflationary impact, and because they have some inflationary impact and some effect on rates, they also have an impact the other way because of very high levels of debt in the West, and therefore you know the mix of high le- high leverage ratios and interest rates that have to go up every now and then, and, and you know that that's a noxious mix, a mix, and that gave us the credit crisis effectively. So I think you've got to recognise that the noise, the economic noise around that, those main themes, uh, is going to be very, very loud. So you have uh, short cycles with very large amplitudes. Very volatile market, very volatile market indeed. Tim Bond also thinks a good old-fashioned portfolio diversification into lots and lots and lots of very different asset classes is a dangerous game in these volatile markets. In these sort of phases, where there's a, a, a sector of the economy... That, that needs massive amounts of investment. Yeah. And unless it gets it, nothing else is going to happen. Yeah. Under those circumstances, um, diversification is literally the worst possible you know, solution to your investment needs. I mean, it's the worst possible thing to do. Uh, and actually, you need a really narrowly focused portfolio where you're investing specifically on that theme. 
The big question for any British-based investor trying to manage their portfolio in these difficult, volatile markets is what about the UK stock market? Should we be ignoring good old Blighty and heading east? Or is the UK still worth investing in? To be honest with you, economically, I'm probably more bullish on the UK um, than than I would be on on Europe or or actually on the US, I think. Um, And the reason... The reason being is that interest rates are a very powerful tool in this country. Um, the government moved much more swiftly and more effectively, I think, than elsewhere in stabilising the banks. Um, so we're sort of... We're, the, the, the bank curing process, I think, is further advanced, and the circulation of credit is improving a lot faster here. The devaluation's done a you know, hell of a lot of good, um, and, and, and you know, that flexibility's been... is, is very helpful... And you're definitely seeing, you know, evidence of that in the macro data, which is improving quicker, particularly, you know, final demand, here, yeah, household demand. I mean, you can take the retail sales number with a pinch of salt, but what is very clear is that in Europe we're on a declining growth trend for, for retail sales, and here it's either flat or, or, or growing. And unemployment actually hasn't gone up very much. You compare our move in unemployment to, to say, the scale of the move that you've seen in the U.S., it, 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 we're in a completely different. It's, it's a totally different league. And I, I'm, you know, looking forward. I mean, there's a great temptation for everyone to write off, you know, the financial system and oh, you know, they're going back to basics, blah blah blah. But actually, no, because what we, you know, we have a major transition phase ahead of us with, you know, sort of economic leadership shifting to China and capital flows and everything. Uh, and that, you know, London sits in the middle of those financial flows. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.